thinking about it, and I think most of the time when we get to the new year, everyone starts thinking about resolutions. You get thinking about what to do next. And I kind of want to change that a little bit this time. I want, I want you to think about, you know, there's this time, this week between Christmas and New Year's. It, it's kind of a pause, isn't it? It's a pause. I, I went to a memorial service last week for Bob Truard, and uh, it reminded me how much um, memorial services really make you think. They make you pause. They make you take a breath. I mean, even you, you can hear stories. Uh, Christmas in 1914. Has anyone heard the story of the World War I, what happened in World War I? In the, I think it was the Western Front. Literally. The opposing sides, they say up to 100,000 people, started like singing carols together. They took a pause. They took a pause. And I think we need to take a pause. We need to, I think, just as much look back as we need to look forward. We need to look at what happened this year. We need to understand those things maybe that, that didn't go right and those things that did. And we need to take a breath. There are different types of breath, though. Right? Let's face it. Um, sometimes there's sighs of relief. Something you, you can say, hey, okay, that's behind me now. Whew. I can get past it. Sometimes there are gasps of exasperation. Have you had one of those? Maybe this year you had a child go wayward or something bad happen and you are exasperated. Maybe there's gasps of pain and suffering. Um, my family had a, a number of things happen this year that were difficult. Um, my wife was the, boy, she, she took the majority of it. Her mother passed away this year. Um, her work, she, she had some injustice happen in her workplace. Um, my kids went through some pretty difficult trials this year, um, and it's hard. You, you have these times where, where I think right now that's what I need to do. I need to take a breath. So we're in this time, in this pause, where we usually have this, it's kind of a false beginning, right? It's a, it's a calendar year that begins. What's different in the two days? Not, not a ton, really. But it's an opportunity, and I want you to take that opportunity with me to take a breath and know that for those of you in this room who love Jesus, who know your king, we actually have reason to take a calm, collected, deep breath. Because no matter what happened this year, whether it was injustice done to you, injustices even that you did, Things that happened to you, you suffered loss or you're grieving, all of those things, as Christians, we have the ability to take not a breath of exasperation, not a, a breath of anger or worry or anxiety, but a deep, calming breath. That's what we're going to talk about today. And you know, it's, like I said, it's hard because they're like, okay, I can go, I could, I could pick anywhere in the Bible. I could pick anything. But I started thinking, what's, what's the place? I remember my, my professor in seminary, he talks about you got to know this verse. you got to know that this sets the stage for so much in all of Scripture. So I decided to take it. I decided to jump in. But I'm going to have to set some stage before we go any further um, in order to get here if my clicker's working. All right, I might need you guys to forward for me. Oh, all right, we're taking a breath. We'll go ahead to the next slide, please. 
All right, in the book of Exodus, how many of you have read the book of Exodus? If you haven't, don't feel shame. It's all good. The book of Exodus is about how God sees his people suffering in slavery, and he says, I am going to jump in. I am going to do something about this. And he brings someone to light named Moses who would actually jump in and take care of that, uh, that issue. He would be the, his, his mediator in the midst of a, a, a people that are slaves under a, a, a harsh regime, under a pharaoh. Thank you, brother. Um, so we have this story of God stepping in with his strong arm and saving his people, um, bringing them out of slavery. There's, the, you know, there's so much that I'm, I'm just passing over, but I want you to understand this God stepped in and brought them into or out of their slavery and into a new place. And then um, he gives them his law. He says, hey, this is, this is how you are to act. When you say that you are a people who belong to me, you are to live in a particular way. It's not very long after that. You know, he, the, Moses goes up on a hill. He gets all of this information on how to build a tabernacle and all of those type of things. But as soon as he comes down, what's happening? They're, they're worshiping a golden calf. They're calf worshipers. The people were disobedient. They immediately, it's like it, it, didn't, it took 40 days. They were grumbling in the wilderness. These are a stiff-necked people. But as these calf, calf, calf worshipers, after this event, it's only one chapter later that we get to what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm going to read you what leads up to this. So if you guys have your Bibles, which is always a good idea, by the way, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. And I'm going to read this with you. Um, some of you might have digital ones. If you don't, it's okay. No big deal. All right, here we go. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people, this nation of calf worshipers. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness, all of my glory, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, so you get the story. Moses is basically saying, show me the good stuff. I want to see your ways. I want to know who you really are, because then I'll know how we need to proceed. And you have to know that when he says, show me your way, show me your your glory, he, he's talking about something beyond just a name. And, and you hear 
God, Yahweh saying, I will show you my name. I am going to show you my name, the Lord. The Lord. Names were important. Names weren't just, you know, I'm Kevin. Hey, how are you? My name might mean something, but I don't think any of you know that. My family probably doesn't know that. I do. It means handsome birth, darn it. <laughs> so now you know. Um, but really, names, you have to understand, in the ancient world, these names meant something. They actually draw toward the character of the person. They gave you an idea of the nature behind the name. And this brings us to where we're going today. This is few verses later, the Lord descended in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed. The, the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. Sounds a little weird. Like, Kevin proclaims the name of Kevin. A little awkward, right? So you have to know there's something very important going on here. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is God's self-proclamation. You won't find anything like this anywhere else in Scripture. This is God saying, you want to know who I am? This is my name. This is me. This is who I am. And much of the Bible, I want to tell you right now, John 3.16, anyone have it? Know what John 3.16 is? Just, just rattle it. You guys could probably rattle it together. He gave us only gift. Absolutely. The, even pop culture understands John 3.16. There was a dude with a rainbow wig who used to go to, to ball events, that, you know, and you'd always see him in the, in the thing. You know, anyway, it's, it's a pop culture thing. It is probably the most popular verse that exists as far as our culture understands. But what I want to tell you is this verse here is, is the John 3.16 of Scripture. It is basically Scripture's talks about this probably more than any other verse in the Bible. This one comes up over and over again in prophets, in the psalmists, in the Proverbs. It, it constantly comes up because this is, this is who God is, and people will call upon this character of God. So we're just going to go through basically these two verses for the majority of today. That's all I want to do. Because when we take a breath, like I said, you are Christians, those of you who call Jesus king. When you take a breath, there is a reason. There is a reason that you can... No matter what happened this year, no matter how you failed, no matter how people failed you, no matter the troubling things that are happening in the world, you can breathe because you have a God with this character. Let's jump in. The Lord, the Lord. Okay. If I step into a conversation and I say, Kevin, Kevin, and then I say something, you're going to think, think I'm weird, first of all. But you've got to know, there's no, there's no other place in the Bible where, where God does this. He's calling his name twice. There's actually a... a kind of a, a, a double thing going on here, but the, the whole point is, is pay, pay attention. And if you don't know, for those of you who don't know, when you see Lord capitalized in the Bible, that's a very special thing. It's basically the personal name of God. It is what we sometimes pronounce as Yahweh. But there was a time when this name came up earlier on in the book of, of, uh, of Exodus. Basically, when Moses first comes into contact with God as a burning bush, he has this conversation with him. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name, what shall I say to him? God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Sounds a little awkward. That's, that's basically the Hebrew uh, of the, the word to be, the existence. It's, uh, I believe it's ekye, ekye asher ekye is what he's saying. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or what I shall be, uh, I am, that type of thing. It is an absolute presence thing. It is I am I am, there's none like me. I am stable. I am, I am it. I am unchangeable. I am has sent you. So, so this personal name is what you see. When you see Lord anywhere in the Bible, it's actually kind of a travesty, I think, that our, most of our, our Bibles just say Lord when they probably should just go back to the old name of Yahweh because we would understand. This is them saying the personal name of God to the Israelites. So you get this idea of I am who I am. But the interesting thing is the word Yahweh is just simply a different tense of that same word. Yahweh is he is. So when Hebrews talk about it, they're saying he is. That is Yahweh. Same, same baseline word. So we have this name that has been repeated. Pay attention. This is my character coming at you. And the first thing he comes up with is merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. Um, the first word for merciful there, actually, the root of it is a woman's womb. This is parental care. I, I can tell you a little story about um, the closest thing I can think about this is when I was, uh, my wife and I were, you know, we had our two kids. My son was pretty young. We were driving through Target, uh, and he was in the cart, sitting in the cart. We let him sit in the cart. And uh, there was a moment I was about, I don't know, eight feet from my wife, laterally, she's riding down the cart on Target, and my son gets up. And I knew at that moment in time, the reaction my wife is going to have is to stop the cart. And that caused him to go forward, up over the end, and his head hit the tile. It was the worst sound, I'm telling you, that I, I, I remember this sound. And this this, this parental concern, this, what this word is, is it's, it's that the female womb, it is, I, I felt this inside me. I was, everything about me was immediately about that child. I, I had no, nothing, everything else turned off. I grabbed him, I got on my knees in the racks of the little girl's area, and I'm holding him by his head and wondering, did I just damage my child forever? God is merciful. God is gracious. These actually, these words belong together. Mercy is, is kind of a state of being. Graciousness actually is a little bit more active. So you can see that there is um, God as he, as he shows himself. He is both merciful and gracious. He, he moves out of these things. So how he is is how he does. Does that make sense? Slow to anger. This actually translates in Hebrew. How many people know this? Long in the nostrils. Long and I don't know why. I think, I mean, I, I've been trying to think. I was noodling this. I'm like, so when you get angry, maybe you crunch up your nose. Maybe it's when you're angry, you're, you know, you're, you're at it. Maybe not. I don't know. But this is an idiom in Hebrew of you're long in the nose, slow to anger. And I can show you kind of these two things paired, paired together. I'm going to go to Jonah real quick. If any of you know the story of Jonah, um, of course, you know about the big fish. Because um, you were taught that probably on flannel grass. Story of Jonah is about a uh, 
a prophet who God calls to go to an enemy territory. And that enemy territory was horrible enemy territory. He was called to go to Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. Assyria would eventually actually conquer Israel and take them into um, exile, their northern kingdom. And the story is about Jonah and how he's told to do something. He does the exact opposite, heads a different direction. But somehow God providentially gets him back where he needs to go. And he goes to Nineveh. He preaches like a two-word sermon. You know, repent or you're going to get destroyed. And the book, the, the last chapter of the book says this. This is, this is Jonah speaking. Because when Nineveh repents, they do, God relents. It actually, the word is repent. So it's, God turns, just like Nineveh turns from their evil, God turns from what he was going to do to them. And, and this is how Jonah replies. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I, I was yet in my country? That, it, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, the whole opposite direction. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows this verse in Exodus. He knows this is God's character. He's like, I knew the way you were, and you're going to take our enemies, the ones who would actually peel skin off people and put it on the wall. You will take them, and if they repent, you will allow it. You will, you will graciously say, okay, you're turning away from your evil, then, then you, I am with you. My presence can be with you. Do you see this? Even Jonah sees the long and the nostrilness of his God, and he's not happy about it. There are countless places throughout Scripture where it's using the same verse. But, but think about this. When you say slow to anger, what does that by definition mean? Can God get angry? Yeah, if he's slow to anger, then by definition there comes a point when he does get angry. You, you may know through Scripture that, that it says that God is love, right? That's familiar, Right? You ever hear, God is wrath? Anyone hear that? You know what that verse is? God is wrath. It doesn't exist. But I want you to know, just like a parent, like how many of you have had a parent that, did, I mean, had a child that didn't do what you wanted them to do? And it was, it was a good thing for them to do. It was a safe thing for them to do. They were trying to run across the road. You grabbed them and you, you told them what, what have you. Right? Your wrath proceeded from your love, your care, your hope for them. If you did not care, which is called apathy, then your kid would be flat as a pancake underneath that truck. You wouldn't care. Why does it matter? You have to know that even the anger that God does have, and believe me, Scripture shows plenty of pictures of God's anger. And In fact, I'd argue most of that anger is toward his own people. Just peel back a few pages. Read a few of the prophets, and you'll see that God's anger burns mostly for the people that he loves, the people who said they love him. Slow to anger. So the New Testament puts it this way. Peter picks it up, and he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. This is actually the Greek word that is actually used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the bottom line is, is God is slow to anger. That does not mean he doesn't get angry. He does. There are plenty of examples of that. But at the end of the end of the day, he is patient because he wants all to repent and come back to him.
Okay, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I think this is something that we have to turn our minds a little bit, because when we hear the, the word love, it means kind of some weird stuff, right? You've got little warm fuzzies in your belly for somebody. That's a version of love. That's good, thank you. Um, <laughs> there's a bunch of people starting to choose to get married in here and stuff, so anyway. But abounding in steadfast love. This steadfast love, you have to understand, many, if you look through different translations of the Bible, you'll see that this is translated several different ways. It might be loving kindness, it might be steadfast love, goodness, favor, and yeah, they're all true. The issue is, is that this word in Hebrew, said is something hard to translate into English without using a whole bunch of different words in order to describe it. God is abounding in hesed and faithfulness, emet. He is abounding in these two words that go together. He is so covenantally connected to his people that that partnership means he, does, he, he is overflowing. There's nothing that can stop his promises. This is what this is trying to say. Steadfast love is used over 250 times. The word hesed is used in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. You check the Psalms. I believe there's one Psalm that has it in every line, like Psalm 136 or something like that, every single line. His steadfast love endures forever, ends every single line. He's faithful. He's loving. And this sits at the center. And he keeps that steadfast love. Now, the word keep there actually is guard. He guards, he protects, he maintains, he preserves steadfast love. It's not just that he's just not loving. He actually is looking at that love and saying, I'm going to protect this because I want you to have it. I want you to have it. I want you to have it. I will maintain and preserve this covenantal relational love such that it is available at all times, 24-7. He keeps this steadfast love. And that's for thousands, by the way, and we'll come back to that in a second. Forgiving iniquity and trans transgression and sin. Um, not only is he loving, merciful, and gracious, but actually, he's forgiving. He is, in his character, forgiving. He doesn't just forgive. He is forgiving. And it says iniquity, transgression, and sin. And these, these are all abounding words. I mean, they're kind of all the different possibilities. It's comprehensive. It's basically saying, hey, come to me and ask for forgiveness, and I will comprehensively forgive you. It's just like Nineveh and Jonah. What Jonah is upset is because these evil people have asked for forgiveness. They've repented from their disobedience, their rebellion, and the, their evil ways. And God says, okay, awesome. Jonah says, not so awesome. I knew you were like that. Do you guys know he's like that? Do you understand that he's willing to... This, this is, again, this, what the worst thing you can think of that you've ever done. Worst. Imagine your spouse standing next to you in the middle of that, or a child, one of your children, standing next to you in the middle of that sin. Imagine. God was. And somehow, he still offers forgiveness, steadfast love, mercy, graciousness, the Lord, the Lord. I'm, I'm wanting you guys to capture This is why we can take a breath. This is our king. Now, we're going to get into some complication here, but we're going to sum up. Lord's name. When the, the Lord talks about his name, here's what he tells us. He's merciful and gracious, forgiving, 
uh, slow to anger, keeping steadfast love, and I believe at the center of this is that whole idea of steadfast love and faithfulness. There is nothing that can stop God from those that he loved. There's actually verses in Romans on that. If you've ever read Romans chapter 8, it talks about nothing can separate you from the love of God. When you say, yes, I'm on, I repent, I know my brokenness, I know I need you, nothing can separate you from that steadfast, abounding love. But there's a dot, dot, dot there. And we have to spend a little time on this because I think this will throw people off. It might confuse you. It might make you worry. This verse ends this way. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? That's what it says. Man, we, we love the Bible here. We believe it. Wow. It's a little hard, right? I mean, the first part's not so hard, right? Clearing the guilty, we want a God who wants justice, right? Many of you have had an injustice happen to you even in the last year. Don't you want justice to happen? Isn't that a good thing? The problem is, it's good for the justice to happen to that person, but what about the justice that should happen to me? God is just. But you just heard the other list in here. So God is just and holy, but that has to be countered. It has to be included in all of this. You can't choose one. It's not like God is this way sometimes and this way other times. No, this is the whole enchilada. You have all of God in the middle of this. You understand his full being. He will not clear the guilty, although he is forgiving. Do you see? You see how even the story of Jonah and Nineveh, he actually forgave them. They repented. But this is where we have the difficulty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, I'm going to take you through a few verses that will actually give some clarity to this, but I want you to know the reality is here, I think God does sometimes do this. I think there are specific times when, yeah, that happens. Um, I'm not going to go through examples. I'm going to give you a big corporate example. God sends his own people into exile. Two different countries, Assyria and Babylon, come in and take their... Israel, they crush, they demolish the temple. A lot of people die in the middle of this. And all of the, all of the prophets talk about that's, mm-hmm, that's what God was going to do. God had told you that your disobedience will lead somewhere. And it led them to being in exile for 80 years, right? Actually, some of them, the northern kingdom for longer. We have to be okay with a just God. And I'm going to argue, that this is probably the wrong way to argue it, but it's just because empirically you want justice. Why? Unless you want everything to just be a giant free-for-all, justice is necessary. But you have to know it's necessary for you, too. So he visits the iniquity of fathers and children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. But let me, let me get some clarity here, because I think there's also another thing that's going on. First of all, you see that his steadfast love is for thousands, and he actually is visiting iniquity on the third and fourth generation. You see the difference in numbers there? If I had a, a thousand books and I stacked them up high right here, and I had three or four books over here, you see the difference? The point is simple. It's, it's a simple ratio. God is saying, I have love 
for everything. I am, the thousands is this big number. It's like thousands of generations is what that should read. Thousands of generations. I have, I have hesed. I have this steadfast love. But if you sin, if you rebel, if you substitute something for me, if you show contempt toward me, then this is going to happen. And there's a few ways. I, I did say that I think sometimes God does do that. I think generally, though, it's different than that. How many of you have had, well, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I mean, how many, you have marriages that dissolve. Do you think the children suffer for that? You have family members that are drug addicted. Do you think the children suffer for that? Do you think sometimes the children see a pattern that they actually pick up? So there are consequences to iniquity, to sin, to us being broken. There are consequences that get passed down. Jeremiah says it this way. He actually picks up on the exact same verse and says, You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Basically saying, hey, God's going to treat you as you deal with. And here's another one from Deuteronomy. And this is actually, um, this is part of the law. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to uh, death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Make sense? Corporately, even Israel, he tells Israel, no, you don't, you don't punish a, a child for their father's sin, right? And then here's the final one, the second commandment. How many of you know the second commandment? Come on. Come on, Rich. Oh, man. I don't, you get shy on me with that. What's that? No images. That's right. No graven images. No graven images. And this is actually something that's delivered before this part of Exodus that we're reading, the two verses we're doing today. This happens much earlier. This is in Exodus 20. And this is what the second commandment ends. It says, no, you should have no, um, you should make no carven images other of, of heaven or earth or under the earth. And he finishes this way. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Does that sound familiar? But it says, of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You get the qualifier here. So if we look at all of Scripture, we can understand that, no, no, it's, this isn't just God being capricious. And, and I want you to look at this word jealous. This is not, um, if you've ever had a jealous, like, boyfriend or girlfriend, that's creepy. Right? This is not what this is saying. This is not like the person like, okay, so where are you going? You know, you, why did you, why were you out so late? Yeah, why, why wasn't I invited to go with you? No, this is not the same thing. This is flowing out of God's character, that very love and care. When he sees the people, he's pouring out and protecting this hesed, this, this steadfast love, as he is showing this goodness and kindness to these people, and they specifically show contempt, substitute something else for him, him and so forth. He's jealous. He responds. No, see, you don't understand how much I care for you, how much I've done for you, things that you do not deserve. It is beyond the duty of the God of the universe to do, to be this on our behalf. Does he have to forgive? No. The bottom line is, is that we understand that, no, this is not what we deserve. 
and you can see, of those who hate me and of those who love me. Okay, so this happened earlier. So you have some context. So just 10, 10 chapters later, you see that he actually complete this. So we see this. God is merciful, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. God does, abounds in love, faithfulness, guards love, forgives comprehensively, and he is just. And what does this lead to possibly? Well, it shows you that God is also, he's jealous. God is jealous. That should be a good thing. This is the good jealousy, not bad jealousy. This is this God cares so much about you, he will pursue you to the ends of the earth, hoping that at some point you will turn around. You will repent. You will come back to him. If we go to the New Testament, it's funny. Um, This very same language is used. Granted, it's a little bit different. Um, Isaac talked about John 1. He talked about how... uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He has shown us his glory as the only glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. This grace and truth, gracious and merciful. Scholars have actually pointed that this is basically picking up that Exodus. It is an echo. Exodus 34, 6, merciful, gracious. And this is being spoken of Jesus, but it actually continues if you go a little further down. For the law was given through Moses. Here, again, he's talking about Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Merciful, gracious. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your ways, O Lord. The New Testament says, no one's ever seen God. But Jesus has made him known. The very glory walks among us. This glorious one would say things like this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You know what that means. You know what he's talking about, right? That's us. The ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. For if you forgive, for, I'm sorry, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe from your spice rack and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, Jesus has picked up the very same thing. But here's the interesting thing. God said that that was about his character. What are these all saying? These are talking about our character. We are to be like God. When it says being godly, it is being compassionate, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, faithful. We're called into the same thing. But see, that may give us pause. We're like, okay, you told me you were going to take a big breath. Now you're telling me I've got to do most things. No, no. Don't miss the portrait of God that Exodus has given us and that the New Testament picks up on. I made known to them. This is Jesus speaking in what's called the high priestly, the high priestly prayer. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You are literally empowered by the grace of the king to do the very things that he's done. But the wonder of it all is 
I fail. You fail. Right? Right? You guys are perfect this year. Last 364 days. You're all good. You followed all this. You are forgiving, just, merciful. You're compassionate in every instance. Uh Uh-uh. You weren't. Neither was I. But this is why we could take, man, this is the only reason you want to seek, people use the word closure all the time. That's nonsense. No one in, with a worldview other than what I'll call a, uh, um, an Abrahamic religion, no one that does, has a worldview other than that has any reason to take a breath. There's no closure. But at the end of the day, we can remember that our God forgives. And how do we see that best? Where do we see that? We see it at the cross. We see our king taking a breath, exasperated how injustice is happening from his own people. We see him saddened, taking deep breaths of sympathy over the the widows and the orphans, people who aren't being taken care of. Who does he take care of? He takes care of the blind and the lepers. They say, Jesus, have mercy on us. Same word. They call out to him, son of David, have mercy on us. And he did. He did it in the moment. He was active. He didn't just feel these feelings of pity. He moved on it. So even in his life, as he breathed, we can take a breath. In his death, as he's betrayed. Many of you have been betrayed this year. Oh, no, he understands. In his pain, in his agony, tell me that he wasn't breathing hard. Tell me there was no anxiety. When you read scripture about how he is bleeding sweat, he's like just sweating drops of blood over what he must do for you and you and me. Yeah. And tell me about that last breath. The words that John, the Gospel of John says, his dying breath is filled and pushed out. It is finished. It is finished on your behalf at the cross. All of the mercy, the compassion, the faithfulness, the steadfast love of God, his slowness to anger toward us is poured out. His wrath is somehow satisfied in the midst of this event on the cross. So you see this this exodus image, all of these things coming together in the cross of our king and in his resurrection, he would breathe anew on us, a Holy Spirit, one who would walk with us all the time, that would bring his presence to us all the time such that we could live the life that you know you can't live on your own. So here's what I'm going to ask you. We're going to take communion. I want you to take a breath Because all of those painful breaths, Jesus took those. He knew them. All the ones that you might be taking now as you look back through the year and the things that have happened, the things you've done wrong, the things you failed at, the way people have failed you, you've been betrayed, you've had horrible things happen, you've dealt with death. Oh, we can take a breath. And that can be a calm breath. It can be a full breath. Because ultimately, when you say yes to Jesus,
when you say yes to Jesus, you are claiming to know the character of the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He guards that steadfast love for thousands of generations, and he forgives your iniquity, your transgression, your sin, wantingly. He wants to do that. Don't you see that? He wants you. He's pursuing us so he can do that, but he's also just. So, hey, I, I'm going I'm to recommend this for, you, for, for this year to try to close out the year. Think about this year. Think about the blessings that have been poured out to you that you don't deserve. Think about the things that happened to you and, and, and look at them through the lens of the cross. Look at your own unfaithfulness and understand, no, 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 all you need to do is go to, you go to this king and you say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. I want to change. I want to be different. And he forgives because his pursuing, zealous, jealous love for you can't be stopped. So I'd like you all to stand. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He said, this is my body broken. Broken for you. Let's eat the bread. And he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of my new covenant. This is the blood of the one with the character of absolute steadfast love and faithfulness to you. This covenant, you're a covenant partner. This was shed for you. So we take this lovingly, honoring him, giving him all the glory he deserves because you know what? He showed us his glory and it's as close as your next breath. Take the cup. Father God, you are good and glorious and all I ask is that you show us how gracious, how loving, how slow to anger, how merciful, how faithful you are to us, how you forgive such that we would come to you with everything. That we can look at the year and say, yes, I failed, but I know you are good. I know you are kind. I know you are generous. You can look at the year and say, I, these things happened to me and I do want justice, but Father, you are the just one and you will bring justice as you see fit. And we know you are good, so we know that that justice will be real and whole. This will allow us to close off the year, Father God. Let your spirit reign in our lives. In Jesus' name.
shepherd is uh it's centered around psalm 23 if you're not familiar with this hymn and it rests so heavily 
on the fact that Jesus follows us through the valleys and through the hilltops, the things that we experience day in and day out. Just as Pastor Kevin was expressing, this is God's expression of his steadfast love. We see it most clearly in Jesus in the way that Jesus walks with us through the things that are difficult for us, through the highs and through the lows. And I, and I just hope and pray that as we sing this song, if it's new to you, that the richness of the lyrics would speak to you, that you would be encouraged that Jesus is with you even now. The King of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. And he is mine forever.
pray, God, thank you so much that we can worship you together so freely this morning, God. My love, my heart, my life is yours. That's what we sang, God, and I pray that that would be our, our dedication to you as we turn this year, God. The things that we do show that those are truths for us, that our life, our heart, our love is yours, God. Help us in doing that. Show us the things that we can do that will best express that. Guide us, God. We love you and we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, as we close, again, I, thank you so much for being here today and worshiping with us. I'm Greg Quirk. I'm the campus pastor.